Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I've been looking forward to today's conversation for a while. We generally focus on topics related to mental health on the podcast, but there's no doubt that our physical health plays an enormous role in our ability to lead a fulfilling life. And there's nothing quite like a pandemic to throw that into sharp relief. That's why I'm so happy to be joined today by one of the world's leading nutritional scientists who is also heavily involved in one of the world's largest ongoing studies of COVID, Dr. Tim Spector. Dr. Spector is a professor of genetic epidemiology and the director of the Twins UK Registry at King's College London. Twins UK is a scientific study of over 14,000 identical and non-identical twins that's been running for nearly three decades. Much of Dr. Spector's current work focuses on the study of the gut's microbiome. He's also one of the leaders of the COVID Symptom Study, a fantastic ongoing study that includes doctors and scientists at Mass General, the Harvard School of Public Health, the Stanford University School of Medicine, of course, King's College London, and the health science company Zoe, which Dr. Spector is one of the founders of. Finally, he's the author of a number of wonderful books, including The Diet Myth, Identically Different, and his most recent book, Spoon-Fed, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food is Wrong. So, Tim, thanks again for taking the time to do this today. How are you doing? It's great. It's a pleasure. Again, thanks so much for being here. I've been really looking forward to the conversation. As I kind of mentioned during the intro, there are a lot of different places that we could start with you. You are an extremely knowledgeable person. But a major recent focus and kind of really ongoing focus of your work is the gut's microbiome, and particularly how each person's individual makeup can lead to very different responses to different kinds of food. To just start by kind of finding a place to start here, for people who may not be familiar, what's a microbiome and why is it important? It's a good starting point. Basically, it's a word that means the community of microbes. And a microbe is anything you need, any little bug you need a microscope to see. And we're actually pretty much half microbe, half human. There's so many of them. And in general, the microbiome refers to the gut microbiome because that's where 99% of these guys are in our bodies. And when we talk about the gut, they're actually in the lower part of the gut. That's the lower intestine, the colon. And we have probably around two kilograms of them in us right now. And so we lose about half of them every time we go to the toilet. Wow. And someone's estimated that you get rid of about the weight of about five African elephants in your lifetime of microbes. So we're one big microbiome graveyard as well. But the really fascinating thing, and the thing that excites me is that all these microbes, which we thought were just bugs that either infected you or did nothing, are essential to our health. And think of the microbiome as a new virtual organ in our bodies. So it's like discovering we have a liver or a spleen we didn't know about, you know, some 18th century physician. So suddenly, these microbes are produced, they're like chemical factories, they're basically producing 1000s of key chemicals that keep our body in harmony and sort out everything from our emotions affecting our brain, to our immune systems, to metabolism, to our appetite, to how we digest food. It's a huge, exciting area. And that's why you've got to stop me because I get very excited about it. 
Oh, no, I think that that's amazing. That's fantastic. And I mean, you named so many different things there that this is important for. And I know that one of the focuses of your study is the way in which the food that we eat influences that system. Is that more or less correct? It works two ways. So with the company Zoe, we've been looking really at personalized nutrition as well. And so that's part of this whole puzzle. So we know from the Zoe studies, the PREDICT studies, they're called the which are one of the world's largest studies done, that we give thousands of people identical foods, how you break down those foods, how you respond to it, depends on your microbes. And in the same way, as you just suggested, we're all different in our microbes, we're all unique. And you can alter your microbes by changing what you eat. So it works in two directions. So that's why, I, you know, in a way, I got into this is because I was studying twins for 30 years, and which is a fantastic job, really, because you could study anything, nature v. nurture of anything. But I got more and more interested in why identical twins were different. And we looked at differences in their genes, and there were some very subtle ones there, and there was something called epigenetics, where you can tweak the genes a little bit with chemical signals or Something, but they never really explained these huge differences by why one twin would be overweight, the other one skinny, one would be depressed, the other one happy, one religious, the other atheist, you know, uh, one die of cancer and one be healthy. So, what we found is the microbiome is the most likely explanation for that because even identical twins in these PREDICT studies ended up having not only different responses to food, but also different microbes. So they have 100% identical cells and genes, but their microbes are only slightly more similar to yours and mine, you know, around 30% similar. And so that fact, the fact that everyone is carrying around this unique set of microbes, which produce unique chemical mixes, suddenly changes our whole idea of health and nutrition. Wow. Yeah, that's for starters, completely fascinating. And the work that you've done with twins is very, very, very interesting to me on a lot of different levels, including in social science research. There's a lot of interest in twin studies of various kinds, as I'm sure you're very familiar with, because of the ability to, to the extent possible, separate out those questions of like nature versus nurture. But the fact that you're indicating that in this study, there was such an individualized response to different kinds of foods or different macronutrient makeups or whatever. I, I took a quick scan at it, and it suggested that genetics play like a relatively minor role in determining somebody's nutritional response to foods. Is that, again, more or less accurate? It is. And it was a bit of a surprise to me because I'm a genetic epidemiologist. You know, the giveaways in the title, I'm supposed to find genes are important for everything. And that's basically what I've done for the last 30 years is say how important genes are. So I come to do this PREDICT study, and most of the thousand first people were in it were twins. So we put all these twins, gave them identical muffins and gave them identical milkshakes, and basically followed them for several weeks with these glucose monitors and with blood fat tests and really measuring everything we could on them. And at the end of that, we found that virtually no two people had the same blood responses to an identical meal. We all vary a lot more than we ever believed possible. And we couldn't explain it by genes. Genes explain some of the differences in our sugars, for example, but only less than 30%. 
And in our response to how quickly we get rid of fats from our body, they had virtually no effect and very little effect on, on our gut microbes. So that means that most of those elements, you know, if you can work out how you can get your blood sugar peaks under control, your fat peaks under control, and your microbes, and they're all interacting, it means that far from the old adage that, well, you're stuck with the genes of your parents, you can't change that. Suddenly, you can start changing all those things by personalizing your diet. And I think that's the really exciting sort of aha moment we got from those studies that no longer was the gene that you were born with and going to die with determining how the doctor would say you're going to respond to food or whatever it was. Actually, it's something like your metabolism, which through your microbes, you can change. And all of us have the ability to improve our gut health and therefore improve all these other aspects, which we thought previously were separate. So I think that that's what's bringing it all together. And that's, to me, why it makes suddenly nutrition, which was probably the most boring topic in the world for uh, most doctors, like myself, suddenly the most exciting topic, because it suddenly starts to make sense and has some real science behind it rather than just observation and anecdote. So getting into that, because that's one of the major takeaways in your book, Spoonfed, is all of these generalized pieces of advice that people are commonly given about what to eat and how to eat, whether they're supposed to eat breakfast or whether they're supposed to have a low carb diet or a low fat diet or a you know low glucose diet or a higher glucose diet, you know, whatever it is, avoid gluten, eat gluten, all the different kinds of advice that people get. If you're living in a world where everyone's body is incredibly different in its response to different kinds of foods, all of that advice breaks down. Absolutely, yes. So suddenly the world of the nutritionist to a few of them who just read the guidelines and say give everyone the same advice, it no longer makes any sense. The idea that every woman is only allowed 2,000 calories and a maximum of 30% fat and has to read a, a label every time they go into the supermarket and if they follow strict advice, everyone does the same. Now, we've known by observation that that policy of strict guidelines has failed anyway, but now we understand why. <laughs> I think that's the difference because even in our in our studies with this whole idea of the calorie, it's the mainstay of the diet industry. It's what drives marketing. It drives everything. And the food industry have fooled us into thinking that you can really get someone to buy a product just by sticking a cal low calorie label on the front and a few other healthy pictures of fruit. And suddenly that is, instead of understanding all about that food, you're just looking at that one number. And what this is showing is that's absolutely wrong because an identical calorie is going to be, give a very different reaction to someone if it's a healthy food made of real food, if it's ultra processed, or even in some people, just because the way they react to it will give them like a sugar dip or a sugar peak. And we've shown only in the last couple of years, these facts shown that destroying this myth that all calories are equal. So once you realize that all calories are not equal, once you realize that one size doesn't fit all, then you've got to start really rebuilding this whole idea of you know, the last 30 years of nutritional advice. Mm. 
So there was one anecdote that you offered or story or study that you offered in Spoonfed that I found really fascinating. So I'd love to kind of delve into it a little bit more. And it has to do with calories and how we process calories. I believe that it was something along the lines of that people can be basically good or bad metabolizers of different kinds of foods. So I'm going to use my language to it and please correct me with the more appropriate language if it's appropriate. Um, But basically, one person can eat a handful of nuts and their body is really good at extracting all of the stuff, all of the macronutrients, all of the micronutrients, whatever it might be, from that handful of nuts. Whereas other people might be a bad metabolizer of that food, so they don't get all of the energy out of it. And in this way, the person who's a good metabolizer might actually be consuming, quote unquote, more calories than the person who's a bad metabolizer. Is that accurate? It is. It's a simplification because obviously, in a way, you know, nuts are not just nuts. They are hundreds of chemicals. Okay. So our problem is that we humans, and I include myself, love a simple solution, a simple story. Take ingredient X, supplement Y the X diet, it's going to, you know, that's, that's all you need to do. Just go gluten-free, go whatever, you know, this one thing will change your life. And of course, it's not like that. So, but the analogy is, is correct, is that in nuts, there is, for example, you know, there, there will be some chemicals in nuts that because you have a certain metabolism and certain gut microbes, you will be able to break down that chemical into a nutrient much faster than someone else. Who doesn't have that microbe? Okay, and it whether it's nuts or it's a muffin, you know, it could be a good or bad food. It could be meat. All of these things have pros and cons depending on what we're talking about. But the point is the same, and it's it's illustrated also in the the idea that everyone who eats a cheese cracker, if they put it in their mouth for a while, some people will feel it sweet in five seconds. Others in it might take five minutes, right? And that's because we all have different enzymes in our saliva that will break down the starch to sugar in different times. So if you, if you just use that analogy and you combine that into the hundreds of chemicals in your packet of mixed nuts, then you'll see how, yes, we all vary totally in, in how we're going to break down all those foods. And we're finding out every time we do another study, it just gets more complex. So the idea that there is a simple fix is really going out the window, but the fact that we all vary and that the idea that nuts are good for everybody or a low sugar muffin is good for everybody is rubbish. You know, the microbes have got something to do with it, but there are also other things that we still don't understand. So we gave in this predict study that we did with the Zoe team, we gave everyone these identical muffins and one in four people after their breakfast muffin had a sugar dip. We knew this because Everybody in the Zoe studies gets the glucose monitor. And one in four people had quite a sharp dip below baseline. And those people we found ate. Many were hungrier at lunchtime. They ate earlier and they ate more and they felt more tired. So you've got this physiological response as well as what's going on with the chemicals to identical foods. So remember, we've got a thousand people all eating identical muffins on the same time and the same day. And just depending on which way your blood sugar is, you know, we don't know why it dipped. Some people don't even notice it, others do. And the same is true of many things. But these little simple analogies help you understand the complexity and why one food isn't going to suit everybody. And at a broader sense, it's why studies of low-fat diets against low-carb diets don't clearly show a winner. 
Because for some people, a low-carb diet might be better. For some people, a low-fat diet might be better. Exactly. For some people, a Mediterranean diet or whatever else. Yeah. Okay. That makes total sense. Yes. So the whole thing is very complicated, but we need to use a few analogies to try and get people to understand it. Because if they can understand this concept, then you can start to understand what makes you tick and how you can experiment with your own biology to get what's right for you and not just believe some guru or some big food company marketing to say, this is the healthy snack for you. You know, you, you eat this high protein granola bar and, you know, this is full of vitamins. It's going to be good for you. Well, it probably isn't anyway, but, you know, there might be some people it's particularly bad for and some people, well, you know, it might be okay. But that's the whole point is it's trying to get everyone to understand more about what's happening when they eat food. So what are some ways that a person could basically run little experiments with their diet or with their health and the way that you're describing to kind of find what works for them. And also at the, you know, obviously personalized nutrition is the big point here and everyone's going to be a little bit different, but is there advice that you found that's at least somewhat generalizable? Yeah, I mean, I think the example I gave of the eating the breakfast muffin, one in four people have a sugar dip. And I think half of those people if you ask them, do feel it. They know that when they get a, too much carbs, they will feel tired and fatigued you know, half an hour afterwards. So there's a few lucky people. It doesn't happen to me, but there are some people, you might be one of them, I don't know, but they feel unwell after it, so they know to avoid it. So it's just worth everyone testing that. Just say, make a conscious effort to feel, what's my energy level like? And I think the way to experiment is best around breakfast. And the reason is that Most of us have not been eaten before it. So we've had a fasting period, generally at least eight hours, and hopefully a bit more. We might discuss intermittent fasting. It's a fair bit in the book on that. But to experiment, breakfast is the best place because most of us have a high-carb breakfast. That's what Mr. Kellogg told us to have. Yep, totally. The Cheerios or whatever it is, and with added vitamins and... Calcium enriched, the whole thing, yeah. Yeah, so... It's the one meal of the day that everyone has virtually the same the whole of their lives. And we wouldn't dream of having it in the evening. It'd be pretty boring. But we, for some reason, do it in the breakfast. Now, first of all, you could try skipping breakfast. And this is one of the most controversial things I say in the book. That <laughs> for some reason, for many people, it's a bit like attacking religion, you know? Uh, yeah, breakfast is a holy cow. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, everyone's mom told them it's the most important meal of the day and uh, I'm not letting you go to school without it. And so it's it's like beaten into us, right? And But it's a new invention. It only came about 150 years ago. And our ancestors never ate breakfast. And when I went to stay with the Hadza tribe in Tanzania, hunter-gatherers, they don't have a word for breakfast. And they never ate before about 10, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. So anyway, first try skipping it because the studies show that on average, you don't put on weight, which was the old myth. There've now been randomized controlled trials, about 10 of them, showing that you're on average likely to lose some weight by skipping breakfast and having a slightly bigger lunch. And one of the reasons is that this probably helps your gut microbes. Mm, interesting. The longer you rest them overnight, you're not snacking, probably the healthier they are. That's the current hypothesis. So fasting in the morning may not be for everybody. Some people might be better off in the evening. So try that for a while, one or two days a week, see how you get on. Then switch 
from your high carb breakfast to a high fat breakfast. So I switched because I used to have what I thought was a healthy doctor's breakfast, muesli with no added sugar, a bit of low fat milk, a bit of orange juice. And it turned out when I started doing these, these Zoe studies and I had my glucose monitor on, I realized I was getting a massive sugar peak in the mornings and I was a pre-diabetic. So that was an instant turn off for me. And, you know, and I avoid bread in the mornings as well, because that was, that was my other thing. So I now have a much more fat and fruit breakfast and that helped me. And I, I found that I can go longer. I don't feel hungry at lunch. So that's the other thing to see which one suits you. And the others might be true. So there are some people who do better on carbs, don't get a sugar spike, don't get a sugar dip, and do pretty well on it. Other things we found, some people exercise better before and after meals. Most people who do regular exercise are quite good about noticing how they perform and just trying to log things like your hunger levels and your alertness and things like this. So that's what everyone can do to see what suits them, as well as altering your timings of your meals. Very cultural when we eat. Many parts of the US, I know, eat very early. If you go down to, you know, towards the Mexican border, you know, you, you'll find more of a, a late difference. In the north of England, people eat 5.30 in the evening. If you go to Spain, they're eating at 10 o'clock in the evening. So huge cultural differences in what you're brought up on. So whether you're a morning person or an evening person, you've got to find out for yourself. Now, obviously, the, in the future, I think that that just scratches the surface, gets you interested. In the future, I think everyone's going to be doing their own personalized nutrition. And if any of the listeners are interested, then they should sign up for the, the Zoe project at the moment, which is now for a few months been commercially available in the US on joinzoe.com, where you get the combination of the glucose monitor, the blood fat testing, and the microbes all together. And other companies are also offering just the sugar tests alone. So I think these are getting cheaper all the time. They're coming. I'm a big fan of self-experimentation as well. So the more you can do yourself to understand your body, you know, they're ready for then get all this massive information that, that's being gathered. So it's definitely the future. And I've certainly improved, you know, since I've started doing this on my journey. Because 10 years ago, I I first really started changing my diet for my microbes. I just said, oh, okay, what can I eat that's good for my microbes? And that was my sort of mantra, really. I gave up calories or worrying about fats or anything. I just said, okay, if my microbes will like it and it's tasty, I'll eat it. Yeah. And some things that I didn't find were tasty, but I got used to it and I now like them because my microbes are forcing me to eat them. <laughs> Mind control, which is actually not that far-fetched. Your microbes can change your mood. So if they like what you're eating, you know, maybe they'll send more signals to make you happy. That is really interesting. And it's such a just as you're talking through all of this, Tim, this is such a, I won't say unexplored territory because of course you're doing fantastic research on it. There are many people who have done some fantastic research here, but we're learning so much about it. And it is such a new frontier of like exploration, the interplay between the gut and the mind. And there's a lot of interesting research on nerve endings that end in the gut and where they hook into in the brain. And are there some cross signals that are going on or all of this very wild, very sci-fi sounding stuff that we're increasingly bumping into as being like, no, this is very credible, plausible science. To return to something that you were talking about a little bit earlier about fasting and particularly about intermittent fasting, which is becoming increasingly popular 
People are doing it more and more, and there are a variety of interesting or plausible health benefits that are associated with it. I would love to go into that a little bit. Is that something that you would recommend for more people that they explore that in their own lives? Yes, I'm actually a fan of this, but it's it's also the, the counterpoint to it is that the food industry made us believe 30 years ago in the mantra that we should eat little and often. It was grazing, not gorging. I don't know if you remember that sort of praise that, that you know, the idea was that if you, you just keep eating throughout the day and this is the best way for your metabolism. And it, it turns out that that's a myth that's complete rubbish. It was based on a study of about nine people 30 years ago that was never done properly, but food companies loved it. And they just gave us even more snacks so they could sell to us suckers, okay? So kids are now brought up saying they need their snacks. And we've gone from eating two meals a day 100 years ago to eating six meals a day. Mm-hmm. So when I say I'm into intermediate fasting, I'm also against snacking all the time. But if you take it a step further, and this idea of intermittent fasting, which for me is generally best done overnight. So we all do this every day of our lives, and none of us wake up starving the moment we the alarm bell goes off. So just extending the time that our gut has no food in it to 12 to 14 hours is what most people see as an optimum time. And this is based on lots of laboratory studies in mice and increasing human studies. And we believe that the microbes benefit from this extra vacation, if you like. They're not having to work. Different species of microbes come out when there's no food, and they tidy up your gut lining. And they generally keep that much healthier and we think it helps your immune system and basically the efficiency of everything that's happening on. It's like, you know, if your car is being serviced regularly, everything's cleaned out and you're washing out the pipes and it's all done naturally. So, and the chemicals that those microbes give out are positive ones for your metabolism. So I think the data is accumulating that's good for your metabolic health. Whether it itself helps you lose weight, I think we still don't know totally in humans, but it's likely it will do. And I think it's generally a good exercise to do because it also, fasting has been around in humans for thousands of years. And it's always good to remember what hunger is like. Most of us who aren't in religious groups that fast have forgotten that skill. And then you you do enjoy your next meal. (laughs) It's delayed (laughs) gratification. And people tend not to overeat to as much as they thought they would having skipped a meal. Mm. So I, I recommend doing it once a week to start with, and you might find that it, it suits you. And I occasionally go, you know, we'll skip two meals. If I'm working really hard, like I have been this last month, and I just feel like, you know, I could just do without some food and then have a really big evening meal. I feel much better after that. So I think that's going to be a huge increasing field. But everyone, again, has got to work out what works best for them, not just follow some guidebook. Because there are some people who do better by skipping the evening meal and having their food in the morning. I couldn't bear that, but some people love it. Mm. So I'm a big, big fan of that. And and it's sort of similar in a way to the 5-2 dieting, which if you are going to sort of diet, that's the only one I would recommend because you can still eat all the full range of foods, but you're just essentially skipping two days a week from eating most of them. 
Okay, so sorry, could you clarify that 5-2 just for people who aren't familiar with it? Yeah, so actually I might have got my terms mixed up here. So there's intermittent fasting, which is actually when you would go have very little calories on, say, one or two days a week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a general term. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. And usually that can either mean zero calories or 25% of your calories, Mm -hmm. okay? And it's sometimes called the 5-2 diet because it's two days of little food, five days. Gotcha, yeah. You just look for the next day. Then there's restricted time feeding or restricted time eating where you compress the same amount of food into shorter hours in the day. So if you're fasting for 14, you're eating in a 10-hour window. Now, you can put those two together so that you sort of skip a meal so that you're actually extending it as well, which combines those two approaches. Mm -hmm. Both of them are working on a similar premise that resting your gut is a good thing to do. So I think the intermittent fasting is, is blending now into this new phase of restricted time eating. Yeah, really interesting. So this flies in the face a little bit of what we've been saying throughout the conversation about the importance of personalization and everybody is different and all of those good things. But humor me for a second here because I can't help myself. If you could kind of wake up tomorrow and basically wave a magic wand and change one thing about the way that most people in the Western world eat, essentially, if you could like get everybody to either care more about one thing or care less about one thing, what would it be? Magic wand would be to stop people eating so many ultra-processed foods, and particularly in the US eats more ultra-processed food than any other country in the world, because it's cheap, because it's often tasty, it's available, and it's easy. Yeah. And that's basically what's killing Americans. And I think America led the world in food technology, and some people say that ultra-processed food helped win the Cold War beat the Ruskies, showed off, you know, Mm. that America had the best supermarkets and the cheapest food for its population, but it's just got out of control. And a lot of people have forgotten how to cook and forgotten that it isn't about, you know, the pulped ingredients and just having something nice to taste. It is about actual going back to the, the real plants that make it up. And I think that's the one thing, if I had my magic wand, I would make fruits and vegetables and cooking lessons free, and I would tax the ultra-processed stuff. So you just had it as a treat. I'm not saying I would ban it, but it wouldn't be a staple. But, you know, like you had some a treat of a, the occasional nice bottle of wine or a, a nice artisan cheese, that would be your burger or your McDonald's or your ready fried. So, mm-hmm. yeah, sorry, it's a big magic wand. I've, I've, I've uh, taken a few things with it as well. But uh, that... No, I like it. I, I think it's great. It, it totally answered my question. And one of the things that I really appreciated about what you said there is the way in which you alluded to the complex interplay of cultural and economic and then all of these things, factors that play into the choices that people make about what gets put into your body. You know, if you're somebody who's working a a 60-hour-a-week, 50-hour-a-week job or whatever, and you're commuting an hour away each way, you get home at night, you don't really necessarily want to rev yourself up to take all the time to cook a healthy meal, and you end up reaching for something that's hyper-processed, and that can create cascades of negative impact in your life. So it's just, it's a very interwoven and very challenging thing, but 
I think that a lot of the work that people like you are doing around personalized nutrition and hopefully improving people's awareness of the importance of these things for optimizing their individual health is, is such an important part of the whole puzzle because the more understanding there is, the more that we can value these things. Yeah, and it, we're being sold this ultra-processed food because we're believing these the labels on it. We believe that if it's low-fat and it's low-cal and it's got vitamins in it, then it's good for us. And we've been completely you know, brainwashed into this belief. And this is a culture that is because you know there is no Anglo-American food culture to speak of. We don't have that grandma that they do in Italy or Spain or France to probably in Mexico to tell us what you know what we should be eating. So that really is where the food companies came in. They started dominating all the information coming to us about what good food was. They told us that it's if it's got low fat on the label, it's good for you, regardless of the thirty other deadly ingredients. And we we lapped it up. They said if it's as a diet drink, diet Coke, diet Pepsi, it's got zero sugar. Forget all the other stuff made from God knows what in it that really <laughs> messes up your microbes. Yeah, that doesn't make you lose any more weight than drinking the highly sugared stuff, and probably changes your taste buds forever so that you mm-hmm. you want more of it. Yep. So we've been conned by this whole idea that we can simplify food into a label that tells you exactly how you should be eating. So we're given this false sense of of comfort. And I think it's all of this is distracting us from the quality of food, understanding what's actually in that food, because we believe that that label is a, is a surrogate for it and that brand is a surrogate for it. If it's got nice farming folk on it or grains of wheat or <laughs> happy happy Italian peasants singing in the sun. Happy cows. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, whatever. You know, <laughs> it's got to be good, even if it's it's made in a, in a factory in China. So um, yeah. So I think we've, I feel really strongly that the more people understand about food and nutrition and their gut, the more they'll understand the system they're in mm-hmm. and we'll be able to break it. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a real movement. And it, and it all comes down to, you know, this understanding of your own body and then understanding the food you want to put in it. Mm. And it is all connected. I mean, it sounds, I'm no hippie, but it sounds like <laughs> we can save the planet because the stuff that's actually good for your body is also good for the planet. Yeah, And that, that's an increasing message now for people, for example, eating less meat and fish and, and things like this that might be more important than, than just the health, health aspects. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that we could just keep on going here, Tim, because there's so much to talk about and we could just kind of keep on rolling with the nutritional side of things. I think that the message that you're sharing is really fantastic here. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are listening who are resonating with it. But I want to kind of take the conversation in a little turn toward COVID, which I know that many people are also very interested in and kind of curious about these days. You're one of the leaders of the COVID symptom study, which I mentioned during the introduction. It's a fantastic ongoing study that's based on data collected through, and I believe that it's an app, please correct me if I'm wrong here, that now has millions of users. To ask a question that I'm sure many people are very interested in, based off of that study and your research kind of broadly, are there things that people can do either dietarily or through supplementation or whatever else to reduce their likelihood of developing severe symptoms if they do contract COVID? Great question. And 
Probably a complicated one, admittedly. Yeah, so what's interesting (laughs) is that the two topics are actually mixed because the reason I was able to get this symptom app together is because of the company Zoe that we're working with on the personalized nutrition stuff. So they actually, because all our studies in twins were stopped when London went into lockdown in March, I asked the company to help us do a COVID app. So that's how the, the Zoe COVID symptom study app came about because they just transferred the skills from nutrition into uh, getting a range of symptoms and how people respond to the virus. So interesting parallels between we all respond differently to foods, we all respond very differently to this virus. And that was one of the really big things that we found in the early days in the first wave. Some people got hardly any symptoms, and there's a whole range of 25 different symptoms you can get. Why we're all different, we still don't know for sure. We think one of the reasons is the microbiome's effect on the immune system. And there's lots of evidence now that people who've had COVID have very bad, got it badly, have very deranged microbiomes because they lack, they lack the microbes that are protective. They don't have ones that are anti-inflammatory, normal anti-inflammatory ones. So having a diverse microbiome that's healthy is really important to balance your immune system. So interesting. Okay. We're just about to release some data. I can't tell you yet because we, we haven't unlocked it. That uh, If you came back in a couple of weeks, I'll tell you. So we got one and a half million people in the US and the UK to fill in a diet questionnaire for us, right? Which is the biggest diet study ever done. And we've worked out whether based on their diet, they were likely or not to get COVID. And the preliminary results look like it does have a big effect, but it's not definitive yet. We haven't published it, but it's looking like it is one of the key components. And it would fit because the other risk factors for COVID are all the same ones that are associated with a poor gut. They are being overweight, having diabetes, coming from a deprived neighborhood, and it also reduces with age. So it's looking like the risk factors for bad gut health and a bad reaction to COVID are very similar. So I think it is crucial that having maintaining a good immune system, you need a good microbiome. And to do that, you need a diverse diet. So I think rather than reaching for vitamins, because we did a, in that same study, we looked at vitamins, we found they only had a very trivial effect, interesting, only in women. So, but at most a 10% effect only in women. So you wouldn't stake your life on vitamins and it, no effect at all in men and no effect for for things like vitamin C and garlic, no effect at all. So good food is much more important. So I would say try and get a diversity of plants. 30 plants a week is what I preach is a nice round number. And we did correlate that with gut health in American gut study. And that includes, it's not as hard as you think, it includes things like herbs, spices, nuts, seeds. So it's actually pretty easy to just keep sprinkling that stuff on. Fermented foods, we haven't touched on them, but there's everyone into gut health will know about cheese, yogurt, kefir, kombucha, kimchi. And then, of course, having plants that have natural defense chemicals called polyphenols that are really good for your microbes. And finally, cutting out, uh, reducing as much as possible all those nasty chemicals in ultra-processed food. If you do that, plus a bit of you know restricted time eating, give your microbes a break, then your gut health 
will be in the best place it can be to help you against COVID. Awesome. That's a great roundup of a very, very complicated territory. So thank you for that, Tim. To touch on two things that you mentioned there for a second. First, you just said polyphenols. Are there particular green vegetables? What I generally hear is like leafy green vegetables that are rich in those? Most plants are rich in them, actually. Okay, cool. I think the only one where there's virtually nothing is the iceberg lettuce. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which ironically, of course, is a very commonly consumed one. It's probably the most commonly consumed one. I think the other one is yeah, that. Of course. It, the other one is the melon that you get at every, all hotel buffet breakfast. Oh, that the green <laughs> melon. Yes. Oh, man. The, the <laughs> one thing that's left over in the fruit salad every time. The tasteless one. Yeah. So yeah. Mm. if you get rid of those two things, <laughs> then actually you're pretty, you're pretty, polyphenol count is pretty good. But if you really want to go for it, you go for the really dark colors. So mm-hmm. if you're picking a lettuce or a cabbage, the ones with the, the darker, richer red blues, they're the ones that have it. Mm-hmm. All the berries are fantastic. I think the, I think it's the blackberry and the blueberry and the raspberry. They have the highest concentrations of polyphenols and also have a lot of fiber as well. Nuts are really good for polyphenol, so they're really healthy. And there's some strange ones as well. So I know Hershey's is popular, but there's not much cocoa in Hershey's chocolate, 12%. But if you go above 70% and you go to that artisanal chocolates, dark chocolate, really good on polyphenols. So one or two of those a night will really boost your polyphenols. And then, of course, I like a glass of red wine. Red wine probably has the highest polyphenol count of anything you can ingest. So don't overdo it. But a small glass of red wine a day is good for your heart. And it's probably because it's giving rocket fuel to your gut microbes. That is really fascinating. And you just became everybody's best friend when their spouse asked them why they're consuming red wine and chocolate every night. So they could just point to this podcast, Tim. Thank you for that. Um, So to do again, like just kind of my due diligence here with one other little thing. I recall a study, I believe that it was published by you guys, and I think that it was the vitamin study that showed a a small but non-zero protective effect for vitamin D, particularly, I think, among women. Is that more or less accurate? Yes. Okay, cool. The effect was less than 10%. Sure. And when we looked in, in another group who had antibodies, the effect was even less. It was about 3 or 4% protective effect and zero protect in men. But because our numbers of the study were nearly 2 million people, we were able to show a small effect. Now, that's an observational study, not a clinical trial. And you have to be wary because I, in one of my past lives, was a rheumatologist dealing with osteoporosis and prescribing vitamin D to everybody who came in. And we used to believe it was a, a fantastic thing to give and that it protected against fractures. And it turns out that when you do the randomized trials, you don't see the benefits on fractures and falls that you would expect from the observational studies. So it could be that your vitamin D level is an indicator of your general health. And so having a low vitamin D level is an indicator you are more likely to get ill or get COVID or whatever it is, but that boosting it artificially with a chemical doesn't actually help you. Uh, uh-huh. Because you're not addressing the underlying problems that are leading you to have a low vitamin D level. Is that correct? That's correct. Or the, the actual 
something about giving the, the vitamin in the form of a chemical, a big dumping a big chemical in your gut is not the same as having a nice load of fried mushrooms or having oily fish or going to the beach for an hour. So it could be that because that's the way the body has evolved to generally uh, get its vitamin D. So there's, there's increasing evidence that these large boluses of vitamins upset the body and you can have the opposite reaction. Therefore, there's some data showing if you have too much vitamin D, you get extra fractures and it can have the opposite effect. So it's just a cautionary tale. I, again, in a bit like skipping breakfast, I know I, I will get probably a lot of hate mail for my um, <laughs> caution about vitamins, which 50% of the population take religiously and provides people with a lot of comfort. But all I would say is never, never, never do that at the expense of your diet. You know, much better off if you can get mm -hmm. that vitamin in its natural state, which is either sunshine or in food, than, again, in a, in a chemical tablet, which you don't know where it's come from, it's been taken from some sheep's wool in New Zealand and shipped <laughs> to a factory in China and then shipped to you in your Walmart. It's not the same as having a range of real good foods. Because if you eat properly, unless you're a vegan, you really don't need extra vitamins. Mm -hmm. In the COVID symptom study, or in you're a, an epidemiologist, you're incredibly familiar with this territory. Are there any other takeaways that you think that people should know about things that they can do to protect themselves? In addition to the obvious advice about mask wearing and being thoughtful, all of that good stuff. Well, definitely losing weight is, that's shown to be a very important one, that the mortality is really related to people who, who are overweight. And so what we did find is that in the first lockdown in uh, April, May in the US, that Actually, a lot of people got healthier during that lockdown period. So I'm sure there'll be some people listening to this who are in uh, various states of lockdown waiting for their vaccines and realize that 30% of the population in the US and the UK actually got healthier during lockdown. They exercised more. They improved their diets. They cooked, started cooking for themselves. They did less takeaways. So this you know, I'm sure all your listeners are super healthy, but if there's occasionally someone who could do better, then this is your great chance to experiment and do more stuff for yourself, get into your gut health, understand things. Exercise is the other thing. There is increasing evidence that if you're over 60, particularly if you're a keen exerciser, you respond better to the vaccine. So there's an interaction again between your physical activity and your, your antibody responses. Mm. And so don't just focus on eating nonstop. Do make sure you, you, know, you go out and exercise and do things. And, and of course, your mental health is really important as well. So it is linked. Your mind, your body, your gut are all linked. So you've got to stay happy. And some of that you can do with food, but that others, it's all about social interaction. So you need a holistic approach to this. And all of these things will improve your immune system. That's really important to know that some of these things are in your control. You can boost your gut microbes, you boost your immune system, and exercise helps that, as does being in the right frame of mind. Well, Tim, this has been incredibly informative for me personally, and I'm definitely going to take an examination of some of the food-related symptoms in my life and how I'm consuming it, how I'm thinking about it. 
also all the advice about COVID, really useful, really actionable. And I just really appreciate that you took the time to uh, do this today. So again, thank you for doing this. It's been my pleasure. Fantastic. And if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing these days, your books, anything related to that, where could they go to find that out? So suggest people follow me on Tim Spector on Instagram or Twitter. And if they want to check out the books, Diet Myth and Spoonfed, best place in the US is probably Amazon or one of the online retailers. If they want to participate in any of the personalized nutrition studies, mm-hmm. then I suggest they go directly to the website joinzoe.com and they'll find everything they need on in one of those places. Yeah, and we'll include the links to all of those things in the description of today's podcast. So if you open up your podcast player and click something like more details, you should be able to find the links to all of that. Also, as a quick note, I've been following Tim's Twitter since significantly before we scheduled this conversation, and it's a wealth of knowledge related to nutritional information, yes, sure, but in the recent months uh, related to COVID, and it's been very useful for me personally. So today, I had a wonderful time talking with Dr. Tim Spector. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology at the King's College London, and he's the author of a number of wonderful books, including his most recent book, Spoon Fed, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food is Wrong. As Tim said toward the end of the conversation, if you're interested in learning about any of his work, purchasing one of his books, or getting a personalized testing kit from Zoe, I've included links to those in the description of today's podcast. So if you go to your player and click a button along the lines of see more or more information, something like that, those links should pop up and you should be able to follow them to the place you want to go. Today, we focused on two primary topics that were heavily interwoven with each other. The first was nutrition, particularly focusing on the importance of personalized nutrition and the gut's microbiome for determining people's responses to different kinds of food and different nutritional strategies. And then second, COVID, the coronavirus and the way in which our nutrition can interplay with our outcomes if we are to contract COVID. Tim began by explaining what the microbiome is. Essentially, it's all of the little organisms that make up the complex ecosystem that exists inside of our gut. To radically simplify a lot of what Tim was saying, the food that you eat influences the bacteria, and the bacteria influence whether or not the food that you eat are particularly good or bad for you. There are certain foods and certain overall diet compositions that are linked to good or bad gut bacteria that can help or hinder elements of your metabolic health. But one of the challenges here is that, of course, people have different bodies. They have different guts. Each of these guts has a pretty unique microbiome. Even identical twins that share their genetic makeup have only slightly similar gut microbiomes. As Tim said, not particularly more similar than he and I had to each other. This means that any broad, generalized diet advice that you are given by the food industry beyond really pretty common sense things like eat more leafy greens and be conscious about how much protein you're consuming and try to consume a variety of whole foods and avoid a lot of really heavily processed foods that have a lot of unnatural ingredients in them. Beyond that, it is very challenging to give generalized diet advice that's going to work for all or even most people. And that was really Tim's consistent message during this conversation. 
Take control of your own diet, take control of your own eating habits, and find what works for you. And alongside that, be a little appropriately skeptical when you feel like somebody is trying to sell you on the newest fad diet. One of the things we touched on in the middle of the conversation was calories in, calories out. This is a piece of general diet advice that is shared all the time. It's really kind of the holy grail of diet advice. If you just eat less and exercise more, you will lose weight. And Tim really deconstructed that. And he shared why the calorie as a measure of nutrition or a measure of weight loss is essentially useless. And part of the reason for this is that people have radically different responses to the same food. Just because we're both eating, to give the example that he shared, a low-sugar muffin doesn't mean that our bodies are going to respond to it in the same way. And we might even be processing or metabolizing the calories in that muffin quite differently from each other. Because of this, just knowing that something has roughly 300 calories in it doesn't really tell you anything about how your body is going to respond to that food. And there's an enormous amount of variation between individuals in both the amount and efficiency of our gut bacteria. And that can have a big impact on how many calories our body absorbs and then converts into energy. To quote a line from Tim's book, the message is clear, individual circumstances can vary to such an extent that the calorie as a measure of nutrition or weight loss is essentially useless. I asked him a question toward the end of our conversation on nutrition, which kind of flew in the face of all of the personalized advice, but I asked him to humor me and he went along with it. I asked him if he could change one thing about the diets of most people in the Western world, what would he change? And he focused on consuming less highly processed food. And alongside that, being a bit more skeptical toward what the food industry tells you is good for you. Again, most of the things that have actually been shown to be good for us are very basic, common-sense advice. Consume a bit more fiber, consume a variety of plants every day, consume whole foods, do more cooking at home. Great, but once you get past that point, it is very, very challenging to give generalized advice. From there, we turn to COVID. He's one of the leaders of the COVID symptom study, which is this huge ongoing study that's shown some really interesting results in terms of the interplay between the gut and people's nutrition and their reaction and response to COVID if they do catch it. The basic recommendation that Tim gave was to just be really conscious these days about your physical health. Exercising seems to have a protective factor associated with it, particularly if you're over the age of 60, and nutrition and good nutrition, particularly being healthy to the gut, is very important these days. It's probably worth naming that there's a lot here that we still don't know, but there's an interplay between the gut and the immune system, between our mental health and our immune system. And all of these things taken together can provide some level of protection from really bad symptoms associated with COVID. So as a final reminder, if you're interested in receiving more information about your own approach to personalized nutrition, you can sign up with the health company Zoe. They offer a lot of really interesting products and testing kits that people can do to learn more about their gut. But I also appreciated that Tim really emphasized personal experimentation and how that can probably get us pretty far right there. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, you can find us on all the social medias. We are on Instagram at Podcast, and Rick and I both have our own personal accounts. 
If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can always support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. I create a bunch of bonus content for the show there, including expanded show notes, which go into the details and the research behind each episode. I know that our conversation with Tim here today was pretty science-focused, and because of that, I'm sure that the show notes associated with this episode are going to be pretty in-depth, and I'm looking forward to putting them together. Finally, if you could, if you've been enjoying the show, tell a friend about it. Leave a rating and a positive review on the platform of your choice, and share it with somebody that you think it could benefit. It's one of the best ways we have to reach more people with this content. So until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.